In our last session, we revealed the mysteries, as they're called in the New Testament. And a mystery is not something that's just uh, no one knows about, you know. It's really, it's a Greek word, mysterion, and it has reference to something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but will be revealed in the New Testament. And one of those is, um, that is still yet future, that we will see in the Revelation, is uh, going to be the mystery of the seven climactic judgments, and that will destroy Satan. So that's coming still. I want to spend uh, most of our time today talking about the coming one world government. Scripture gives us a lot of information about this. There is some information in the book of Revelation, and it makes an assumption that we know these things because this coming world leader that uh, we call euphemistically as the Antichrist. Um, He's got a lot of titles in the Old Testament. It is an assumption that he's running the whole world's government in the book of Revelation. However, the book of Daniel in chapter 2 and chapter 7 give us some very, very good information about in outline form of how this comes about. The book of Daniel was written by a prophet, Daniel. When he was a young man, perhaps 15, 16, he was in Jerusalem and considered to be one of the future leaders for his love for God and his intelligence. And uh, there was a battle up in the north called Karshamesh. And um, the Egyptians, under Pharaoh Necho, were aligned with the Assyrians against Babylon. And you got these three massive nations coming up to Karshamesh to battle. And for some reason... I don't understand it. The Bible doesn't explain it. No one seems to know. I asked my Hebrew teacher back when I was at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, why did this happen? A really good king, Josiah, from the south in Judah, he sees this battle, and he's going to go up there and join it. He wasn't part of the battle. He had no beef with those guys. But he goes up there, and... He doesn't last very long. He's got his war chariot, and they're wearing these uh, pieces of metal that are like a shield on their chest. Well, one of the combatants fired an arrow at him and just got between the pieces of metal and killed him. And from that point forward, other people were choosing the kings down in the south. Necho chooses a guy... Babylon wins the war, and they start choosing people, and it just is is something else. And uh, this starts a... um, This starts a time that... uh, Because Nebuchadnezzar goes down to Jerusalem after winning this battle in Karshemesh. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's also a general, as most of these guys in the ancient world were, because that's how they got their power. They uh, conquered other nations. Well, he comes down to Jerusalem, and uh, he's going to take whatever he can down there. He thinks that the Jews don't have the uh, battling prowess. So he's going to go down there. And what he does, it's about 605 B.C., he goes down to Jerusalem and he uh, steals some of these young guys that were working in high administrative learning situations in the government, one of which is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and so on, get taken 
And they all get, they all get their names changed. The three guys with him, get, they're called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He leaves Daniel, though, with the name, but he gives them another one that they're not using much, Belteshazzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And uh, he uh, goes to his uh, soothsayers, you know, his prophets, and he says, I want you guys to tell me about this dream. It really upset me. And they said, okay, what was the dream? He said, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. If you guys are worth your pay, you tell me what the dream is, and then you tell me what it means. Man, we can't do that. And uh, so he says, well, basically, you're useless, you know. Somebody says to him, you know, those kids that you stole and kidnapped from Jerusalem, he seems to be really sharp, and he's got a relationship with God, and he's done some interesting things. Why don't you ask him? He's, okay, bring him to me. So they bring Daniel to him, and he says, I had a dream. I want to know what the dream was and what it means. And he says, can you tell me? He says, I can't. He says, but the God that we serve can. And I don't know if he will or not, but I'll ask him. So Daniel starts praying, and God gives him this image and says to him, go tell Nebuchadnezzar, basically. And uh, he goes back, and he says, I think I know what it is, and I know what it means. He says, okay, what is it? He says, well, you saw a very, very enormous image of a statue. And it had a head of gold. It had a chest of silver. And it had a belly of brass and legs of iron. And then at the end of the legs, there were ten toes that were independent of each other. And he says, well, what does it mean? Yeah, that's the image. So now he's really interested. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means that there are four successive empires. You're the first. You're the head of gold. You're the most important. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's all puffed up. And uh, he said, there's going to be a, a uh, country that has two he said the two arms, two divisions that have come together that is going to succeed you someday. He says, yeah, and then what? He says, and then there's going to be a country that is going to succeed those Medes and the Persians. And he gives them the names. He says, basically, they're going to, they're going to succeed you and then this other nation, which turns out to be the Greeks under Alexander of Macedon, they're going to exceed them, he says. And then there's a fourth image that a fourth entity that is going to succeed everybody. It's going to divide into two with the legs. It's going to have ten regions, kings, something. And Nebuchadnezzar is just really enthused. So he makes Daniel the prime minister. And uh, he continues in that role. After the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon, he then stays in the position. He's able to convince them that I'm capable. So they leave him in that role because he's not a Babylonian. And uh, <clears throat> that second group lets the Jews go back to Babylon if they want to. And the leader is Cyrus the Persian. And he's mentioned in the book of Isaiah as being a servant of God. That's how he's a servant, by letting the Jews go back. Well, there's, they've been there for 70 years since the very first invasion. Most of them don't want to go back. You know, I've mentioned this many times because 70 years, that's three generations these people were born there, and they're, you know, and they're told, if you want to go back, go back. And go back to where? This is our home, you know. So about 50,000 of them go back, and they set up uh, facilities under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel to rebuild the city because uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't, uh, didn't treat it too well. He harmed the temple. He harmed the 
village and uh, actually the city. And uh, so um, Daniel is very thankful, very close to God. He starts praying again. And he does, you can see this multiple times, his fidelity to the Lord. And uh, he's praying. And he gets in chapter 7 another image of these world empires. But this time, it's animal-like characteristics. Babylon uh, and the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then this last fourth empire, are all coming out of, quote, the sea. And the sea, in Bible speak here, represents the sea of humanity. It's not, they're not coming out of the water, the ocean. And uh, he sees this, this image, and Gabriel's giving him this, the angel Gabriel. And he's uh, just beside himself. What is this? The very first image is of a lion. And the symbol of Babylon is a lion. In the British Museum, in the Berlin Museum, over in uh, the Oriental Institute, in the University of Chicago, there are gateways to the Babylonian, uh, uh, actually their city, and they've got columns and lions all over the place. So he sees this lion, and he gets this explanation. This is the first of the four countries. The Lord Jesus called this succession of countries the times of the Gentiles. And he made this known to his inner circle, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, on the Mount of Olives, a week before he was crucified. And they were asking him all kinds of questions. Now, we went through, before we started the Revelation, the, the um, Olivet Discourse, and we talked about this in some measure. So Daniel is getting this dream, and the second beast is a bear. And then the third beast is a goat with two horns, and it's aggressive, where it's pushing its way around. And the second beast represents the Medes and the Persians. The third beast, the goat, represents the Greeks under Alexander. And the last beast doesn't have an animal characteristics, and he can't get what it is. It's what we call nondescript. And he describes this thing in the dream <coughs> as taking over the entire world, stomping around, eating everything, and, and killing everything, and being uh, extremely aggressive, and no one can stop it, and it covers the whole world. And there are ten, on this beast, there are ten horns on its head. And it's just the same as the ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's image. And, and he's watching this and he sees an eleventh horn pop up on the head of this beast or whatever it is. He, he, does it, he can't explain it. He didn't never seen anything like it. And the little horn starts speaking blasphemous things and saying all kinds of terrible things. And he kills three of the ten horns. And the way it's described is he uproots them. And he becomes the eighth horn. And that beast continues on with that little horn having control over the seven 
that were left after the three were wiped out. And he becomes the single worldwide leader of this last stage of the times of the Gentiles. And most Bible teachers, and even seminary that I went to, calls this last beast the Roman Empire. And that is true for the very first stage of the Roman Empire. And that's what we're going to explore today, that last beast. And by the time that this last beast comes along, uh, the world by this last guy, I mean the Antichrist, the world will have descended into a single worldwide government. And now you look out there today and you see all these different countries vying for each other in terms of commerce and power and periodically there's wars between them and civil wars within them and so on. But it is going to degenerate into a single worldwide government with one person leading it with complete, absolute control. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the individual dynamics of the Roman Empire, but I would appreciate if you could read this later on what I've written because the individual stages of the Roman Empire parallel these images. The ten horns and then the image of Nebuchadnezzar with the ten toes and so on. There are going to be divisions that are going to come about from this last beast. It's a dreadful, terrible beast with iron teeth. It's breaking and devouring the residue of the other beast. The other beasts have been conquered, and this beast starts eating them up. Now, this fourth empire is in its earliest stages, Rome. Rome died out. It went through successive Caesars, successive divisions, successive individuals dethroning the Caesars and so on. The image in Daniel chapter 2 with that giant statue with the ten toes it has a final demise of a stone that is made without hands comes rolling into this thing, takes the image down, and it controls the entire earth. And that is the messianic kingdom under King Jesus. The stone made without hands. Jesus is called the rock, he's called the stone, he's called the foundation stone in a number of places. So here's the image of Jesus coming and taking control of the entire world with the Messianic kingdom. Now, what Rome did, and a lot, there's a lot of people that say, well, there must be, there must be a revived Roman Empire. It must have come back because the ten toes don't have a break before the stone hits it. I mean, there's no, you know, we're going to wait to see what happens and then the stone will come. No, it's the legs and the ten toes continue until the Messianic kingdom. So the better way of looking at this and saying Rome was the first stage, and then it divided under Valentinian, Valentinian and, and that, that division, in, I think it was about 374 A.D., lasted for quite a while. And when you look at the end of the Roman Empire, you've got the western side and you've got the eastern side. The western side headquartered at Rome, eastern side Constantinople. Used to be called Istanbul. 
And there's different churches that are similar, the Greek Orthodox and, you know, the Roman Catholic, um, and different governmental structures, uh, the division. And these images that are in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are very, very accurate, telling us what has happened and what will happen. Now, this form of government that the Romans created was unique to every other form before it. The Romans created a concept known as imperialism. And it is the imperialistic form of government that continued on after Rome ended in 364 AD. And every successive government from that has been an imperialistic government. Imperialism is not a bad concept. Imperialism just means that a political governmental entity is set up to influence its neighbors. We are, the United States of America, an imperialistic country. We influence our neighbors. We've got embassies all over the world. And uh, in doing so, we conduct negotiations and trade relationships and uh, treaties and so on. So there's nothing wrong with this being connected to others. But imperialism can encompass various strengths of maintaining that relationship. For example, the Nazis, they would send people, other Nazis that were sympathetic to their cause, into other adjacent countries to get situated on boards of directors, uh, commerce, trade boards, try and run for elections and so on, so that they would develop the Nazi ideology in these other places and then Hitler wanted to just take them over, assume them, and they, he did it to a lot of countries. Um, places like Austria just succumbed to him because they said, we, we can't fight this guy. That's another form. Um, another form of imperialism is where uh, you just go invade them and take them over. That's all, you just take them over. And that's sort of what Rome was doing in the beginning as they increased their empire. And what they did was, as we see from what happens in the Gospels, Rome invaded Jerusalem about 63 AD under Pompey, and they set up a function where they let the Jews run themselves through the Sanhedrin, the ruling group in Jerusalem, but they said, you, you guys run yourselves. All we're interested in is controlling you and uh, getting taxes, so you, you give us a tax collector. And two, we don't want any insurrections. We don't want to uh, impair what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So you gotta behave. And uh, one of the components of that is if you got somebody that needs to be executed, you can't do it. You got to bring it to us. We don't want you doing this. We will evaluate the merits of uh, capital crime and whether or not you can uh, execute them. Because if you execute somebody that's real popular, you're popular, you're, you're going to cause an insurrection. That's the last thing we want, because if Rome finds out that we weren't managing the store here accurately, they're going to take us away and bring legions in, and all the local Roman people are going to lose their jobs. So they didn't want that. But that's what another form of imperialism is. You let, them, you let the country adjacent to you do what they normally do, but you control them. You don't let them do anything outside of what you want. The imperialistic form of government is what succeeds Rome. When Rome came to an end and um, 
there was a group of Germans that came down and sacked Rome, 364, 364. And um, Rome was basically over. And the people who were the leaders in Rome, bear in mind now, this always happens. The leaders can see things happening and they get out quick. They're not going to tell anybody. Uh, if you remember back to the um, Islamic uh, Iranian takeover of the embassy in Tehran, when that happened, it was under Jimmy Carter's presidency. He never got it resolved, and they just laughed at us. Well, I was working in Saudi Arabia after that, and there were some people working with me that had a consulting assignment in Tehran, and they said, we got early news that uh, this was going to happen, and so we got out. So did the top-level politicians. They knew that the... Uh, I can't remember what the name of the Republican Guard or something. Somebody had leaked to them to get out because this takeover of the American embassy is going to have some ugly consequences. So get out of here now. So people in the know will protect themselves. Well, that's what happened there. It's what happened in Rome when Rome died. The scribes, the politicians, the leaders, they went up to Russia on the eastern side. They went up to Russia, the Constantinople, not Rome, but Constantinople. And they went up to Russia, and they infiltrated the government there. And um, the, the government structure was a kingdom at the time, and... Uh, they infiltrated it and started affecting its structure, and even the terminology of the officials changed. They called the king of Russia a czar. Czar is a Russian word for Caesar. It's the same thing. They translate evenly. Over on the western leg where Rome is they infiltrated the government it was uh, the Frankish government they infiltrated that and they influenced it so that government and which succeeded was succeeded by the Germans under Otto and when they did that the Germans got influenced by these guys coming out of Rome, and they were very politically savvy. I mean, these people at the highest level of political office in the world have got a sixth sense for power transfers, and they can figure out where it is and how to get a hold of it. Well, these guys got into Germany and into their king, and they were able to influence it, and they started calling the king of Germany Kaiser. Kaiser is the German word for Caesar. So all this stuff is happening to show us the development of this last nondescript beast. This nondescript beast. And these guys who became the czars, who became the kaisers, they have implemented imperialistic forms of government. We see what Germany did. Germany started both world wars, trying to take over the entire world, and the Russians have tried all kinds of stuff too. Um, they did have control of a lot of countries in the communist regime. Um, and um, that resulted in a uh, glasnost, and, uh, which means to listen, and uh, 
perestroika, restructuring, but they didn't give up their satellites. They called those satellites um, the communist or, or the commonwealth of industrial states. The power shift happened, but nothing changed. Nothing changed. Now, now, there's a guy running it who's an absolute autocrat, an imperialistic autocrat. His name is Vladimir Putin. He was the head of the KGB under the communist regime. So nothing's changed. It's the same group of people that want power and control. So how do these two sides come together? Where, where are we going to get a one-world government? You've got these two disparate legs, if you will, of the Nebuchadnezzar image. Someday, yet future to us, the Bible gives a great deal of detail in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about an allied invasion of Israel. That allied invasion is led by the Russians and the East Germans and the Islamic nations. They come south and they come up on the mountains in the north from the Golan Heights and the Galilee and they come down into south into um, the southern areas of Israel. The Israelis meet them with a high degree of force. The Bible doesn't say this, but the force is so strong, I think it's a uh, limited nuclear exchange uh, because every one of the soldiers that are coming against Israel die. Not one Israeli dies. And it's a fascinating, um, we've talked about this way, way back when we did Ezekiel, and I've posted this in a several different spots, uh, particularly on YouTube, uh, describing this. Some of my colleagues and I uh, did a seven-part series on YouTube about this whole invasion because it's so fascinating. And uh, that is going to cause this world to stop paying attention to the Russians and the Islamic nations. They lose their political prowess. And once they've lost it, um, they're going to be begging to keep power somehow. And uh, we're not sure exactly what the dynamics are, but my guess would be that something like the United Nations, if, if that's not in place at this time, is going to say, look, we got to all come together. We can't have this happen again. We can't have all a bunch of nations invading, um, you know, one nation, and uh, we got to all come together. And I think that's the catalyst for the one world government. This Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion, which uh, is going to change the structure of the world. The Weaponry, it's interesting, that gets used in this invasion uh, because of when this was written. Now, the words in Hebrew are generic words for weaponry. In other words, uh, it'll call an arrow that gets translated in our English Bibles, it'll call it a missile. And uh, a, a tank, for example, is called a chariot, and that word is Merkava. Well, when the King James translators and the others that were translating the Bible into English looked at those and looked at the weaponry that was available in 1600 or late 1500s, it uh, must be a chariot, must be an arrow, you know, bow and arrow. But those are generic terms. Um, a missile doesn't have to be an arrow <laughs> because this is yet future to us. And interestingly enough, the Israelis call their tanks Merkavas. So it's, it's just fascinating to see that this invasion is yet future to us. 
before the tribulation, and it is going to cause this world to try and come together. And once this world comes together, we're going to have the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7, where this little horn pops up, a great charismatic person that the world loves him, they're listening to him, and and he's very, very persuasive. He's then either himself or someone else for him assassinate three of those kings in the ten regions. He takes over the entire world. And the other seven submit to him. And this is the final stage of imperialism. And that final stage is having power of every aspect imaginable concentrated in one guy. You know, Hitler did something similarly. He got elected in 1933 to the chancellery, which was second under President Hindenburg. He wanted to be the president, and Hindenburg didn't want him around at all, but his brown shirts... (laughs) were uh, like a little army. He had a bigger army, personal army, than the standing Wehrmacht. And uh, so they were all afraid of him. So they let him be the chancellor because he didn't get enough votes in their system to be president, but it was close. When Hindenburg died, Hindenburg, well, he just ascended into the presidency. And what he did was he implemented some strategies to take over all the power. He had somebody set a fire in their Capitol building, the Reichstag, and uh, they had to then submit to him where he was going to fix it, and I'll protect you and that sort of thing. They went after the Jews. They had a, a big night, and they called it Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass where his brown shirts went out and they attacked all the Jewish people. And they had been writing and speaking against the Jewish people and using the uh, documents that were produced in the Reformation, which is sick, but produced in the Reformation uh, by Martin Luther, uh, just making nasty comments about the Jews. The Jews and their lies. It was uh, a book he wrote, and Hitler was taking that around or had his people taking it around all the state churches because they were all controlled by the state. The Lutheran church was, and the uh, Reformed church was, uh, and the um, Anglican church and the Presbyterian church. They were all controlled by the states because after um, the, the, the second guy running Rome after Constantine, and he was about 300 A.D., Theodosius, he merged the church with the state, and they started uh, paying all these different churches in these different countries instead of the churches being independent. So they were all dependent on the state. Uh, It's an ugly scenario, but that's what happened. And the one-world government will come about It's most probable because of the Allied invasion, because it's going to be so huge, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes it as those participants that come in a united manner against Israel all lose their political prowess on the world stage. They all lose it. And uh, so the world comes together in one unity, And what we're going to see in our study of the book of Revelation, and uh, we saw one aspect of this in our study of Isaiah, where this Antichrist, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, right at the beginning of it, is going to sign a treaty with the leaders in Israel. And uh, God says in Isaiah, it's evil. These guys are evil to do this. But they're looking at this guy and seeing him, how he came to power, killing three of the kings of the ten regions and saying, man, we better marry up with this guy somehow, you know. So they sign a treaty with him 
We don't know the terms of the treaty, but it has something to do with letting them get control. The Temple Mount, getting rid of the Islamic edifices there, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and letting them rebuild their temple, and uh, protecting them, so to speak. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth, because... For three and a half years, they're going to be living under this lie, peace and safety and security. And then there's going to be an enormous number of people coming against the Jewish people. Now, from this point forward, there are at least 15 descriptions of events in the book of Revelation that don't have a tight chronological sequence. We can't tell. We know, we know in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, there's going to be 15, 18 things or so that happen. I'm going to describe a couple of them today, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to go over those. We can't put them in a chronological order because there's too many, and they're all tied together. So I can't say with certainty, this happens and this is this, this. They may all be happening simultaneously. The, the Bible is not clear, but we know what they are and we know what the result is. And that's what we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. The first one that we looked at last week is the Apostle John getting the title deed to the earth and he eats it. He's told to eat it. And it's the prophecies, yet future, from the middle of the tribulation about what's going to be happening. And he gets sick. He said, it sounded so great when I was beginning to eat it, and then I got sick. Um, the next thing is there is another worldwide conflict that is coming. We'll look at that today. The Antichrist gets killed during this period. And then he gets resurrected and comes back to life. Satan gets cast down to earth. The resurrection of the Antichrist is clearly <laughs> described. The three kings will submit, and they're discussed in this section. Um, there's a destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon Ecclesiastical Babylon is the worldwide government, um, excuse me, worldwide religious entity that will be on the earth at that time. There are two witnesses that will be prophesying in Jerusalem, and they will be killed, and then they will resurrect after three days, and then they will be taken up to heaven. The Antichrist will be worshipped by the world and it will be this false prophet that is leading the worship of all the pagan apostate religious entities to worship him. Everybody that aligns with the government of the world will be required to take some sort of a mark with the number of the Antichrist's name, and it's 666. Uh, we don't know what that means. Uh, we just know what it is. And without that mark, you're not going to be able to pass easily from place to place. You know, it's going to be like a passport. Uh, it's a key to buying things. If you don't have this mark, it's either going to be on your forehead or you know, your hand, and if you don't have the mark, um, you're not going to be able to buy in normal location stores. There's going to be an underground economy. It's going to be huge because there's going to be a lot of people that will not do this. Um, the seven-year covenant that was signed with the Jews at the beginning of the tribulation is going to be broken. There will be what the Bible and the Lord Jesus called the abomination of desolation, which is the Antichrist going into the Holy of Holies in this new temple 
and um, blaspheming God, there will be from that point forward an enormous persecution of the Jewish people. There will be a lot of mid-tribulation announcements made. Um, and then finally, the last trumpet will sound. We saw the first six so far. Remember the sixth one issued the three woes. Two woes we saw with these demonic invasions coming out of the abyss and uh, how scary they are. Then there will be the seventh trumpet, which is also called the last woe that the sixth trumpet described. And that last woe opens up the last of the big series of judgments in the book of Revelation called the bull judgments or the vile judgments, which brings the worst of the worst persecutions on this world that are coming. So, quickly, I just want to look at the uh, first two of those. It goes back to Daniel. Every, all this stuff goes back to Daniel and other prophets. And I've made this you know, known for quite a while that most people have never looked at the prophets. And they describe everything that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's not new. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. And he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that which is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his place shall he honor the god of fortresses, that's Satan, and a god whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. And he shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign god. Whosoever acknowledges him, he will increase the glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for a price. And the time of the end shall the king of the south contend with him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall enter into the glorious land, Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, and he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to sweep away many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. This is the description of the reign of the Antichrist and the fights he's going to have. Um, whatever peace he had between the seven of the ten kingdoms is gone now. It's going to go in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, this is a conflict that he will have to endure. The Antichrist is going to move out in a bunch of directions, uh, fighting other countries for control that previously had given him, have ceded him control. Now they're taking it away. Uh, they're saying, now we're not going to take it away. We're not going to keep it. Um, this is going to set the stage for the abomination of desolation that we'll talk about in uh, next week or the week after. Three countries, and I don't know why these are separated out, are going to avoid his warlike aggression. Uh, Edom, Noah, or excuse me, Moab and Ammon. And those countries now have been amalgamated into um, 
Jordan. That's all part of Jordan now. Um, Daniel states where the Antichrist will plant his headquarters during this mid-tribulation war. And he's saying he's going to cover from the sea to the sea. And it's uh, basically from the Mediterranean Sea until the Dead Sea. Um, and a glorious mountain. The mountain is uh, down around Qumran in the north of uh, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the Salton Sea, if you will. Um, the word for tent that's used in Hebrew is a military tent, and the description with its adjectives of it's a royal military tent. Uh, Daniel 11.45 shows that he will be killed, but he's going to be resurrected. Uh, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. That's where Jerusalem is. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So he's not going to have a great deal of favor being the only person running the entire world because there's a lot of people that also have a lust for power and they all want to take them down. You know, I've seen this in the corporate world. It was described to me by one of my uh, superintendents that the VPs are walking around the president's office with knives behind their back, you know. <laughs> they all want his job. I mean, that's, that's how the political climate works. Revelation 13.3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So he will be healed after he was dead. Satan's going to cause him to come alive. And that's going to be more control for the government of the world, the single government, and more people seeing this are going to go, ooh, this guy's God or something like it, you know? we got to follow this guy. And uh, he will then continue on. And we'll look at this as we move through this book, but his ultimate end is being cast into the lake of fire along with the false prophet. So let us pray and... Uh, conclude this message. Father.